Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles today to Mark chapter 1, verse 2. Last week, we kicked off a new sermon series in the book of Mark, which we are calling The Show Me Gospel. And that title comes from the fact that Mark emphasizes the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. Mark emphasizes the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. Now, there is certainly teaching of Jesus in the book of Mark, but there is a greater emphasis in that particular gospel on deeds. Instead of giving long accounts of the sermons of Jesus, Mark gives focused accounts of the deeds of Jesus, which makes the gospel of Mark particularly relevant for us today because we live in a show-me world. We live in a show-me world, a world that must see the works of Jesus through us before they will be receptive to the words of Jesus from us. And as such, the key verse for the book of Mark is Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that really is the gospel of Mark in a nutshell. In this show-me gospel, what Mark shows is Jesus in action. He is living out the life of a humble servant. But as we learned last week, this isn't just any servant. There were lots of servants in that time, in that culture. But rather, Mark chapter 1 verse 1 made three important points about the identity of this humble servant, Jesus. Three things. Number one, Mark 1 1 told us that Jesus is Savior. That Jesus is Savior. His, His human name, Jesus, in Hebrew, Yeshua, English Joshua literally means Yahweh saves. And I find such great comfort and encouragement and hope to know that Jesus' actual human name means that he is Savior. Second, Mark 1.1 told us that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. This is a title, which means anointed one. It identifies Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one about whom the prophets wrote. Jesus is the Christ, which puts him in a category all by himself. And then, as if that weren't enough... Mark 1.1 1, 1 told us that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that he is of the very same essence as God the Father. So in short, this humble servant that Mark wrote about is none other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will set about in his gospel to demonstrate that to us over and over again. Now with that in mind, it's important to note that in Roman culture which is where Mark is writing and who he is addressing, the arrival of an important official was always preceded by a lead or a herald who would prepare the way. Let me say that again because it's really important to our discussion today. In Roman culture, the arrival of an important official was always preceded by a lead or herald who would prepare the way. And that lead or that herald would announce the coming of the one, this dignitary, and he would make sure that everything was ready for their arrival. And this Roman cultural principle is going to be very important to Mark as he writes. Why? Well, because if Jesus is everything that Mark says that he is, then the Romans would expect 
to see a lead or a herald who would appear prior to his arrival. And if there was no lead or herald who came before Jesus, then it was reasonable for them to question the importance of Jesus or even to conclude that he's really nobody of any significance. No herald would mean Jesus was no big deal. And so this is why Mark begins his gospel by introducing John the Baptist. He was the lead or the herald of King Jesus. And again, in that culture, very, very important. The one who would come before and prepare the way. So with that in mind, will you please stand with me as I read the text? We'll read it as a unit today. So if you would stand with me, we will give honor and respect to the Word of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 begins like this. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, as we dive into the gospel of Mark in earnest today with both feet, God, I ask that you would make the scriptures come alive, that they would, in fact, be, as they are, sharper than any double-edged sword. God, would you pierce our hearts today in places where they need to be pierced, and would you bring healing and comfort in those areas where we need healing and comfort? God, we thank you for John the Baptist, his example, his challenge. May you apply his example and his challenge to our lives today, we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Again, this text is all about this guy named John the Baptist, the lead or herald who appeared before the arrival of Jesus. And the passage tells us three things about John. The passage gives us his credentials, his calling, and his character. His credentials, his calling, and his character. Now, Here's why this matters to us today, and it really, really does. John the Baptist raises the question of our readiness. John the Baptist raises the question of our readiness, and we will flesh this out more at the end when we talk about application for now. Just file that away and know that it matters to us today because John the Baptist raises the question of our readiness. But first, let's explore his credentials. Answering the question, what authorization did this guy have to be the forerunner for Jesus, to be the the one who announced his arrival and made the necessary preparations? What were his credentials and could they be trusted? Um, After all, slide, we have an example in the news today of someone who faked their credentials, who lied about education, employment, religion, and accomplishments, and who therefore lacks credibility. This example in the news reminds us that if we're going to take seriously what someone has to say, they also have to have legitimate credentials. And the credentials of John the Baptist are given in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, many of you know in musical terms what a mashup is. Raise your hand if you've heard that term before, a mashup in musical terms. Very simply, a mashup is a recording created digitally by combining and synchronizing the instrumental tracks and vocal tracks from two or more different songs. Essentially, you take two songs, you put them together, you mash them up into one, and when that happens and it works, it makes for some pretty interesting music. Well, what we have here in Mark 1 is a prophecy mashup. Uh, What we have is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, being mashed up with Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and resulting in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But it's interesting, who does Mark ultimately credit with the prophecy? Not Malachi, in, back in verse 2, as it is written, Isaiah the prophet. Poor Malachi gets no credit here. Why do you think that is? Well, probably because Isaiah was the more known, famous, renowned of the two prophets. But the God-given authority of both Isaiah and Malachi is beyond question, and here they are prophesying that there would be one to come who would prepare the way for Jesus to be his herald. And this came to fruition when John the Baptist was born, and the Holy Spirit prompted his father Zechariah the priest to exclaim this in Luke chapter 1, verse 76. He said, and you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so the Holy Spirit affirmed through Zechariah the priest that John the Baptist was indeed the one credentialed to be the forerunner for Jesus, the one who would announce his coming and make the necessary preparations. And Mark now confirms this here at the beginning of his gospel And just in case we still doubt John's authorization to be the lead or herald, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Whoa. You talk about that. That'd look good on a resume, wouldn't it? Jesus said, so we got Malachi the prophet, Isaiah the prophet, the Holy Spirit through Zechariah the priest, Mark the gospel writer, and now Jesus the Christ all vouch for John and authenticate him as the forerunner for Jesus, the herald who would prepare the way. Which means that, listen carefully, this is important for us today, we ought to listen to what he has to say, right? If all of these important figures come together and they authenticate and credential John the Baptist and what he is saying, we ought to listen to what John has to say. And when he raises the issue of our readiness, we need to take it to heart. So the next thing that Mark talks about with John the Baptist after his credentials is his calling, his calling in verses 4 and 5. What exactly was John credentialed to do? What would be his job? And we've already kind of touched on it just a little bit, but let's go far, far deeper. Look at verse 4. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now I want you to pay careful attention to that phrase, in the wilderness. 
It says that John appeared in the wilderness. Well, where exactly was this wilderness? Most likely, as we look at the map, it was somewhere in that red circle, that red oval there, about 20 miles east of Jerusalem on the Jordan River, which runs from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. And again, the text intentionally identifies this region as wilderness. Why? Well, because this whole idea of wilderness had some important spiritual significance for Israel. You see, for them, you will recall, the wilderness was a symbol of sin, of judgment, and of God's discipline. After being delivered from slavery in Egypt, where was it that the Hebrews wandered for 40 years? In the wilderness. And if we were to bring some of those folks in here today and say, tell me about the wilderness, they would tell us about the wilderness and the spiritual ramifications of that. It was a season and a time of their sin and rebellion when the hand of God was heavy upon them. Now, in contrast to the wilderness is, of course, the promised land, symbolizing obedience and blessing and prosperity. And so when John the Baptist called people to the wilderness to deal with their sin, this is no accident. This is intentional. The desolation of that terrain, all that they saw before them, would serve as a visual representation of their hearts. And remind them that they were wandering in a spiritual wilderness much as their predecessors wandered in a physical wilderness. And any hope, any hope that they would have of entering into the spiritual promised land would require them to deal with the sinful condition of their hearts. Without that, they will remain in the wilderness. And so this was exactly how Isaiah the prophet described John's job in Isaiah 40 verse 3. He said, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Any heavy equipment operators here today? You guys got the coolest jobs. Kind of jealous. I just know I would do a lot, a lot of damage with some of that equipment. But in essence, John the Baptist was called to be a spiritual bulldozer, right? A a heavenly earth mover to remove the rubble of sin from people's lives. And there's actually a spiritual term for that practice. Do you know what it's called? Repentance. Repentance. As it says in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. Well, what exactly is repentance? I, I thought this definition that I found in Erdman's Bible Dictionary was very helpful. It said it is a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. Where are my military folks this morning? Raise your hand, military folks. Again, thank you for your service The idea that best describes repentance. Is there anything you can think of in the military that has to do with repentance? How about about face? Right? About face where we turn away from sin and turn toward God. We turn away from the past and turn toward the future. We turn away from the old life and turn toward the new life. And please note this. It is more than remorse. It's more than feeling sorry for what we've done. And it's more than a desire to escape the consequences of our sin. That falls far short of repentance. Because I know a lot of people that feel bad about what they've done. 
They feel sorry and they don't want the consequences that go along with it. Repentance is so much more than that and it's so much more than confession. Confession is good. Repentance is more. Rather, repentance is the complete and total change of direction. The prophet Joel expressed it this way as God used him to call his people back. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. What an encouraging passage of Scripture. Yes, we go astray. Yes, we wander. But God calls us home. But that calling home involves a change of direction. Well, John helped people who were coming out to the wilderness to deal with the spiritual rubble in their lives, to repent, to give outer expression to that inner change of heart. What was the instrument for giving outer expression to that? It was It says in verse 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, the Jordan River, as you know, is an important point of geography in Israel's history. It served as the border of the Promised Land. But this, this slide's interesting there to me. And as one who has not yet made a visit to the Holy Land, and I say yet because I want to go, I need to go, and I need to take you with me, right? Um, I keep talking about let's make it happen. But it's interesting, as you look at it, the Jordan River, and some of you have seen it, can attest, it's not really as big or impressive as you think, right? It looks a little bit more like the Clam River, doesn't it? <laughs> um, its average width is only 100 feet. Its depth ranges only from 2 to 10 feet, which made it a great spot for baptisms. Now, interestingly, the Jews had their own concept of baptism. Uh, The Jewish concept of baptism was really more in the form of ceremonial washings. Do you remember in our study of the tabernacle, there was this instrument called the bronze laver, the bronze basin, where washings were made, purification, but that had to happen repeatedly over and over and over again. John's baptism, on the other hand, as he called people out to him, this baptism of repentance was not meant to be over and over and over. It was meant to be a one-time baptism by immersion, which symbolized their repentance, their change of direction. There was a form of baptism in Judaism, but guess what? This was interesting to me. It was only for Gentiles, Gentiles who wanted to become Jews, And you see, when a Gentile would submit to this form of Jewish baptism, they were saying, in essence, hey, we're outsiders who are far from God. And the baptismal rite was the initiation to bring them into Judaism as proselytes. But here, check this out. This will give us some context. Here, John the Baptist is calling Gentiles and Jews to this kind of baptism, saying that both Gentiles and Jews were outsiders who were far away from God. How do you think that went over with the Jews? Not great. Not great. They were offended by such talk. Again, they viewed themselves by their ethnicity, by their heritage as being God's chosen people, therefore part of God's family already. They were viewing themselves to already be insiders and not understanding the spiritual dynamics at play. Now, we might ask, 
How was John's baptism similar and different than what we practice here called believer's baptism? I think that's an important question. Well, first, John's baptism was similar to believer's baptism in that they both were by immersion. I think that's one thing we can say as they went out to the river. John didn't call them out to the river in the wilderness to sprinkle them or pour them. No, he brought them out there to dunk them in the water. And also, it symbolized repentance. Those are two things consistent with believer's baptism that we practice here at First Baptist Church. But there was a big difference, and it's a huge difference. It makes all the difference. John's baptism did not symbolize regeneration. John's baptism did not symbolize regeneration. And what do I mean by that? A key verse for us in understanding believer's baptism is Romans 6.4. It says, We were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So while John's baptism symbolized repentance, which is important, and it's an aspect of believer's baptism, John's baptism did not symbolize this new life reality only made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John's baptism was for the specific purpose of getting hearts of the people ready to receive that reality that is symbolized by believer's baptism by immersion. The the reality that is embodied by the coming of Jesus. So, in in essence, John's baptism of repentance was all about preparing the soil of people's hearts. Getting rid of the thorns, getting rid of the weeds and the rocks, so that when the gospel seed was planted by Jesus, it would be able to take root and bear much fruit. So there are some similarities, but also some key differences between John's baptism of repentance and our believer's baptism that we practice here. As the Apostle Paul would later say in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Okay, so that is John the Baptist's credentials, his calling, let's briefly touch on his character, and he was quite a character, wasn't he? Look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. There's really no way to get around it. John was a weird dude, all right? Even by first century standards, John was a weird dude. He had weird clothes. He wore camel's hair. Um, where, Where did he live? Out in the desert? Wearing camel's hair? Do you think he got hot? Maybe at night it was extremely useful, but during the day, um, I imagine maybe John didn't smell very good either, but hard to say. Doesn't say. Um, He ate weird food. He ate locusts. Anybody try locusts recently? No? You did. How was it? Not good. (laughs) Predictably. Um, I actually read this week, um, this popped up, that locusts provide a good source of protein and could be prepared in a variety of ways. Once the wings and legs were removed, the body could be roasted, boiled, dried, and even ground up and baked into bread. Now, we have a relevant example of that connected with this church, don't we? What is it? We support a missionary, some say, right, who intentionally raised crickets for this very purpose. And so, yeah, give it a try. I'm not. (laughs) But... um, 
You know, it raises the question, why was John so weird? Why was he so weird? Why did he dress the way he did with camel's hair and a leather belt? And why did he eat locusts and wild honey? Well, one reason that John appears weird is that he was called to live as a Nazarite, like Samson in the Old Testament. And Nazarites were a special order of consecration in Judaism that had some pretty extreme disciplines that they engaged in. But primarily, and listen to this carefully, this is important. John's weird lifestyle was reminiscent of someone from the Old Testament. Who was it? Elijah. Elijah. This was very intentional. We read in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. See if this sounds familiar. This is speaking of Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Ding, ding, ding. Almost exactly word for word what we just read about John the Baptist. This is not accidental. This is intentional because it was prophesied in Malachi 4.5. Malachi says, poor Malachi who gets no respect, no footnote, but Malachi said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, who's Elijah or who's uh, Malachi talking about? He's not talking about literal Elijah come back to earth. But rather, he is talking about one who embodies the character and ministry of Elijah, namely John the Baptist. The angel said as much to John the Baptist's parents in Luke 1.17. The angel said, and he, John, will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Once again, Malachi prophesied it. The angel announced it. John the Baptist would embody the character and ministry of Elijah as he prepared the way for Jesus. And then Jesus affirmed as much in Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So again, what we have here is John the Baptist being equated with Elijah of the Old Testament. John embodying the character and ministry of Elijah as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which is why John was so weird, why his dress and his diet were reminiscent of that Old Testament prophet. But... It should also be noted that John intentionally dressed this way to be different than the religious leaders. To be different than the religious leaders. They wore those long, fancy, flowing robes, very prim and proper as they engaged in much pomp and circumstance, but also much hypocrisy. They were known to talk the talk but not walk the walk. And John's dress and his lifestyle would function as a contrast and a rebuke of those hypocrites. Now that might sound arrogant, right? And judgmental, as if John was holier than thou, bringing judgment. But actually, verse 7 tells us that John was anything but arrogant. Rather, he was shown to be very, very humble in verse 7. And, And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Can I just say that it is my fierce conviction that feet are gross. They should be covered at all times. 
But they were especially gross in the first century where, you know, people walked on dusty roads, muddy roads, dung-covered roads. And in John the Baptist's day, it was the job primarily of a Gentile slave, a Gentile servant, to remove the sandals and to wash feet. But what does John say about how he relates to Jesus? Again, verse 7, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down. And untie. So what John is saying here is, hey, compared to Jesus, I'm lower even than a Gentile slave. That that Gentile slave who has that low position of having to take off the sandals and wash the feet, I'm not even that. In that culture, again, I don't know there's anything lower. Which is why when later on, John started losing disciples to Jesus. Remember that episode where Jesus is growing in popularity? John the Baptist is waning in popularity. John the Baptist says without hesitation, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, the greatness of Jesus in contrast to John the Baptist was also evidenced by their baptisms. Look what John says in verse 8. John says, I have baptized you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's water baptism was great, but it couldn't do anything to change the heart. You see, John's baptism was outward with water. It was a symbol, but by itself, it had no power to transform a heart. On the other hand, the baptism of Jesus with the Holy Spirit, that would be inward, and it would transform hearts. The baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place in the life of every single believer when they cross the line of faith and put their trust in Jesus alone for salvation. That is the once and for all baptism of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. There are many fillings of the Spirit and many experiences of the Spirit throughout our Christian lives, but the baptism of the Spirit takes place once and for all when we cross the line of faith. And in that experience, there is the transformation of the heart. And so Jesus does that. John just baptized with water, meaning that Jesus was infinitely greater and John never hesitated to say so. So John's humility and reverence for Jesus was one of the defining elements of his character. And so that is his credentials, his calling, and his character. And now let's take a few minutes to talk about application Answer that question, how should we then live? At the beginning, I said, John the Baptist raises the question of our readiness. He's all about preparation. He raises the question of our readiness. He raises the question of our readiness in three specific ways. First, number one, are you ready for judgment? Are you ready for judgment? Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Pretty plain, right? Pretty simple. Judgment, where every thought, every word, every action, every deed will be on trial before a holy God. And the horrific truth that we all know is that we are all guilty and we deserve his wrath. That is an awful awful thing. But that's where the next verse comes into play. Verse 28 of Hebrews 9. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, the only hope that we have in being ready for judgment is that Jesus bore our sins. Jesus paid it all. We sang it in the commons this morning. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he made it white as snow. Is that your testimony? Can you say that today? Jesus paid it all, that you are in Christ. You've experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of your heart, the forgiveness of your sins. John the Baptist raised the question with Jew and Gentile alike in the wilderness of their readiness for the first coming of Jesus. So he raises for us today the question of our readiness for the second coming of Jesus. I came across a quote this week. I thought it was timely. It said, You cannot keep walking down a wrong road and hope that it will eventually turn out right. I know way too many people like that. And it is, in fact, tragic. Some of you here this morning, how's that working for you? You know you're on the wrong road. And the longer you stay on that road, you just keep accumulating debris and damage and hurt and wounds. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. John the Baptist called people walking down a wrong road to recognize it and to repent. And he calls you today to do the same. And if you remember that, that prophecy or those words from the prophet Joel that I read, God waits patiently with open arms like the father of the prodigal son to welcome you home, to welcome you home. Will you come home? Next question John raises, are you ready for abundance? Are you ready for abundance? You see, following Jesus is not just about escaping judgment. We, as we just saw, that's important. That's a big deal. But boy, are we shortchanging it if we limit it to that. Following Jesus is about residing with him, abiding with him in the promised land. And not just in the sweet by and by, but in the here and now. We did a whole sermon series, didn't we, on the abundant life, the fullness of life, the life that Jesus said, I come to bring you life and life to the full, the life that he intends for every single one of his children. We were made for abundance. Do you remember that slide from earlier? It had that contrast of the wilderness and the promised land. I wonder which one of those pictures best represents your spiritual life today. Which one? Is it barren or is it fruitful? Is it desolate or is it abundant? Jesus again said, I have come that you, me, us, that we may have life and have it to the full. You were made for abundance. And if you are not currently experiencing the abundant life, the place to begin is with some spiritual inventory. That's what John in the wilderness was about. Hey, come in the wilderness. Let's do some spiritual inventory. Let's call out sin for what it is. Let's repent. Let's get baptized. And let's get on the right road. What is blocking your abundance? Is there willful sin? Rebellion? Unconfessed sin? If so, then deal with it. Give it to God. Is it lies of the enemy? Oh, the, the enemy has a field day with us with his lies and convincing us that, oh, this is all life can be. And, oh, we're just doomed to experience this dismal existence here on this earth. And life is just one terrible thing. The lies of the enemy. Life's hard. Jesus said so. 
but we are called to be more than conquerors in the midst of those difficulties. Is it busyness? Perhaps maybe for, for many of us in the church, it's like the, the, the thing that sabotages our abundance, the spiritual promised land, is we're just too busy to experience it. You are made for more than just escaping judgment. You are made for abundance. Next, John the Baptist raises one last question. Are you ready for opposition? Are you ready for opposition? Because there's no way to sugarcoat it. John's earthly story did not have a happy ending, did it? Those of you who know. He was beheaded for boldly proclaiming truth. John's ministry was marked by courage and by urgency. The same kind of courage and urgency that is desperately needed in the church today. I think it was timely to have Bridget Roberts here today in Life Resources and to think of the courage and urgency required in being a part of a ministry like that. The same kind of courage and urgency required in the church. But that courage and urgency comes with a cost. Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Done deal. Automatic. And then 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Pretty plain. So mark it down. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised by opposition. Rather, be alarmed if you're not experiencing opposition. For that is probably an indication that you are not living with courage and urgency, the kind of courage and urgency demonstrated by John the Baptist and intended for all of God's children. So John raises three questions for us today. Which one most applies to you? Are you ready for judgment? Are you ready for abundance? And are you ready for opposition? Next week... We'll be in verses 9 through 11, the baptism of Jesus. We're going to wrestle with an interesting question, maybe one you've addressed before. If John's baptism was for repentance, why did Jesus get baptized? Right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant us courage and urgency today. It's so easy to sleepwalk through this life, to mark time, to simply seek to survive when you've called us to thrive. God, we ask for your help to be more than conquerors. We cannot be that on our own. We can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray for anyone who is here today that is not ready for judgment. God, may your Holy Spirit be heavy upon them. May you convict them of sin. May you bring them to their knees. And may they do business with you today because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. God, for those who are just muddling through, who are not experiencing the abundance that you intend for them, their life is marked by wilderness more than the promised land. God, would you give them hope today? Would you give them encouragement? But also, God, would you put your finger on what it is that is sabotaging their abundance? If it's a lie of the enemy, call it out. If it's sin, call it out. If it's busyness, call it out, and may they have the courage to repent, to change direction, to get on the right road. And God, for, again, for all of us, may we be ready for opposition. And God, may we face opposition the way that you have instructed us to. May we do it with gentleness, with winsomeness, with meekness. 
May we not be people who are hungry for power in the human sense so that we get our way. God, may we be people who tap into true power in the person of the Holy Spirit that we might live the way that Jesus lived and the way that John the Baptist lived. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.